crucifixion narrative um, from John 19, um, starting at uh, verse 16b through to verse 30. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it in a sponge, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave Uh, we're going to carry on looking at this wonderful uh, portrait uh, of Jesus that the uh, Apostle John uh, paints for us. Um, there's just a couple of things from last week that I just want to kind of highlight again uh, that we have in the back of our mind as we just enter this next uh, section. A lot of the themes just carry on. There's not uh, anything new. So hopefully just as way of reminder. Um, and really, one of the major things is that when we look at this passage, John 18 and 19, we need to have uh, John's sense of irony as he writes this. Uh, uh, the soldiers mock Jesus. Um, he says, behold the man in front of the crowds. He says, behold your king. And really with, with John, it's just a huge irony. 
uh, because really here is the God man, here is uh, the king. And in the passage that Ollie read for us, verses uh, 16 uh, through to 22, we see this irony in action again. Uh, they crucified Jesus, Pilate hands him over to be crucified by the Romans uh, soldiers and they place him between two thieves. He's labeled as a, as a criminal uh, and Pilate wrote the inscription that stand, uh, that's written, that's, that's placed above him, here is the king of the Jews and it's written in three different languages you'll notice and of course uh, the Jews take issue don't they 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 see him as a blasphemer and they want written Pilate don't put he's the king of the Jews put that he said he was the king of the Jews this is not the charge uh, that we brought him that he was the king say that he said he was Uh, but Pilate I think just to really spite them uh, just says I have written what I have written. I'm not going to change anything for you. So here is Jesus lifted up, crowned with thorns and written in three different languages, really for all the world to read. Here is the King of the Jews. The prophetic irony is just dripping off the passage, isn't it? Last week we were thinking about how God's wisdom subverts the wisdom of the world. God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. His weakness is stronger than man's strength. And so when we look at this, we don't have to go up and defend Jesus. We don't have to speak him up because here is the Lord Jesus in God's wisdom in his full glory, crowned as king. The irony, here is the king of the Jews. Secondly, uh, the other thing to bear in mind is that Jesus is not out of control of the situation. Uh, We thought last week that God's sovereign plan is unfolding and when you dig under the surface you can see the prophetic writings. Well in in verses 23 to 24 John makes them really explicit for us Uh, and he talks about the soldiers didn't he and how they were to divide up their clothes Um, and in verse 24 uh, they said to one another let's not tear this one piece but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be and John says this was to fulfill the scriptures which says they divided up my garments among them for my clothing they cast lots so the soldiers did these things God's plan is unfolding under the surface what he's written and prophesied many years ago is becoming to fruition if you look down to verse 28 it's there as well after this Jesus knowing all that was now finished said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. God's sovereign plan is at work. God's glory is being displayed. And today, really simply, I just wanna kind of pull out why is Jesus in his full glory here? Uh, I'm sure everyone here knows all the answers to all the questions. We've been singing about it now and just celebrating it, but it's worth reminding ourselves of, what, of, of why Jesus' glory is being, on, um, being displayed here. Um, and I wanna just hang the answer to that question on three little phrases uh, we find in um, this story. 
And the first little phrase is in verse 26. Um, so Jesus has been let out, he's been crucified, they divided up his clothes. Uh, and as he's hanging there and he's on the cross, there are women uh, crowding around him. Uh, sorry, verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sisters, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And verse 26, look at what Jesus says. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. This is the first phrase I just want us to get thinking about. Why does this behold his glory? As he says to his mum, look at me upon the cross. Why is, this, um, why is his glory being displayed here? What is he saying? Um, for me, and if you've studied John, you might think I'm way off on this. Um, and in discussion, I'll happily concede if I've, I've got this wrong. Uh, but when I read that, woman, behold your son, my mind went straight back to chapter two, uh, when Jesus is in Cana at the wedding feast. Um, if you just flick back uh, to, to that, because there Jesus calls his mum woman again. Uh, you remember the situation. Um, it's a wedding feast. They're probably, it's probably the wedding of a close family friend uh, because as the wine runs out, which in that culture was a major embarrassment, a, a major issue if you're at a party and the wine runs out, um, you, you will be kind of culturally embarrassed. It's, it's not a good thing. Uh, Mary goes straight to Jesus to deal with it. Um, traditionally, I've, I've always thought, well, she knows that her son is... God, surely he can do something very quickly. But I, I don't think that's why she does it. Uh, he's the firstborn of the house. Uh, and if this is a family friend or a family, um, a, a family member or a friend being married, um, then as firstborn of the house, it would be Jesus' responsibility to, to deal with the problem. So naturally, she's just going to him. And I don't think she's expecting a miracle. And Jesus, as Mary says to him, like, what are you going to do? Uh, Jesus throws a curveball back and says, woman. He distances himself from his mum. And he's not being rude. It's the equivalent of saying kind of lady or, or madam. He says, my time has not yet come. For us studying it, we know he's talking about his death. Uh, but for, for them in the situation, that would really have confused him, confused them. And he goes on to turn water from the jars used to clean people to get ready for worship into wine. He transforms the water into wine. And what's going on in this little story? I think John here puts it as a, as a parable uh, to show us that Jesus has come to transform the old order, the, the order of the system of the law into something far better. You remember the kind of the head waiter says, why have you saved the best until now? And Jesus, in all that he was going to do, when his hour will come, he's going to turn the old into something better, the best. And so as Jesus is on the cross, he looks at Mary. And I just wonder, is he saying, you remember that moment when you, when you told me as firstborn to, to deal with the issue? I wonder if he's saying, here I am doing it. Finally, my hour has come. Because who is Jesus? He's the firstborn son, isn't he? And not just of Mary, but Colossians 1, he's firstborn of all creation. 
He is the one responsible for the whole world. He is the one who's going to inherit it and rule it. And just like back in Cana, Mary says, look, what are you going to do about this issue? Jesus is kind of remembering this moment and says, woman, you remember, here I am now taking on responsibility. Here is what I have come to do. Behold your son. And the problem that Jesus is taking responsibility for, what is that? Well, it's not just simply that there's not enough wine at a party. But the world that he has made, the world that he has loved, on the one hand, made by him, and it's full of wonder and beauty, with his precious image bearers at the centre, humanity, who are there to reflect and live and bask in the glory that he has, they've rejected it. And as a result, this world that is full of flowers and colour now is a world full of thorns. This world that should be full of life and flourishing is, ends in death. This world that is made that should be full of good and beauty is, uh, is, um, is just full of evil and suffering. And here the creator of the world, the Lord Jesus, has come to deal with that issue. The world is cursed. It has a huge problem, hasn't it? And throughout all the ages, God has been pursuing us right from that garden moment through Abraham and through Moses and through the kings and through the temples and through the exile and through the prophets. God has been seeking to correct this huge problem. And as that wedding um, in, in Cana illustrates, nothing was really sufficient to deal with it. He's come to transform it to something better. Uh, just imagine for a moment that I'm in the docks, uh, just to use the Marvel kind of language, there's a multiverse happening and somewhere I am in, I'm in the docks, I've, I'm not. Um, and the, the charge that's been brought on me is death. It's, it's serious. But I say, look, what I'm going to do, I've, I've got someone else to take my place, someone who's going to stand on my behalf, another life that you can have. And what I do is I just simply bring out goats and bulls. And I say, look, their blood is going to take mine. Now, for any kind of court that is saying, if, if, if that could be a situation, there would be absolute outrage, wouldn't there? How can a, a goat or a bull take the place of you? You're the one who's committed uh, whatever offence it is, and it's, it's, it's your blood we need. Now, if that kind of situation at all was on the table, I would need someone, wouldn't I, who represents me as a person, someone who bears my name and who is not guilty of whatever I have committed. God knew this throughout all the Old Testament and the pursuit of us throughout all the ages. It wasn't just finding ways to mend the problem. He was doing something far deeper. He was giving us types and he was giving us pictures and he was giving us foreshadows of the one to come who could really deal with our problem. He didn't change the plan halfway through. He was unveiling for us the person who would stand in our place, the person who could represent us. Hebrews 10 verse four. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. They're not the realities themselves. 
For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Blood, the blood of bulls and goats was ineffectual to deal with our issue. But the writer goes on, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. A body you've prepared for me. See, for all the evil and for all the suffering and for all the thorns and chaos sin has brought in this world, through all the Old Testament law, a body has been prepared and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is this sinless, promised, sufficient, innocent one who is not only able to stand in our place but who has stood in our place in the docks for us and it's it's God the son who's done this it's the king of all the world the second person of the trinity has left his throne in heaven and joined himself the word has become flesh so that he can represent us in our so that he can take responsibility for what we cannot achieve on our own. This man stretched out who looks at Mary and says, behold your son is the way, is the truth, and is the life that you and I need to overcome our own darkness. He is what we need to pull back the thorns and the evils in our life so that we might live now, not just with a credit of righteousness, a status that we will cash in when we get to the pearly gates, but a righteousness that comes into effect now by the Holy Spirit, a righteousness that is active, so that we might glory and, and bask in the presence of our God like we did in Eden as we are joined to him. What Jesus has done has provided the way. So like Paul, we can say, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's what Christ has done. That's how his glory is displayed. And so can you see God's wisdom at work? How our king in his weakest moment is actually our strength. How his death is actually our life. Do we see here the firstborn son taking responsibility for his creation? Being responsible for us. Behold your son. His glory displayed in his death. Secondly, there's a little phrase so Jesus looks at the woman, behold, uh, sorry, Jesus looks at his mother, woman, behold your son, uh, turning all the Old Testament into, into something better. Uh, but then, verse 27, he said to the disciple, uh, which is John, by the way, the disciple he loved, uh, the one writing this gospel, he says, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What's going on here? Well, Jesus, after saying to Mary, um, behold your son, he says to the disciple, behold your mother. And I think on a, on a practical level, 
really all that's going on is Jesus is making provision for Mary. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, he turns to, to John, who's just right next to her, and says, says to him, look, behold your mother, look after your, this is now your mother, look after her. Um, I, I was thinking, where on earth are uh, James and Jude, the, the brothers of Jesus, who should, be, who should be there looking after her? Uh, I know that James and Jude um, will become Christians later, but for now, where on earth are they? Uh, all that we know is that they rejected Jesus like everyone else. Uh, if you go back to the feeding of the 5,000, um, extraordinary miracle, loads of people come around Jesus and he explains to them, look, it's not bread, it's not food you need, but it's me. Uh, and they just want all the material blessings and this great crowd, this multitude all disappear and it's left with the 12. And just on the, the next chapter, chapter seven, it says that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him either. His own family have rejected him. And so here he is in, in the moment of his crucifixion and his, his, his family have rejected him. Mary's there and he turns to John and say, look, look after her now. Everyone else has departed. And there's just a wonderful grace here, isn't there? That Jesus makes provision for Mary and, and John brings her into his own home. She is now your mother. And so on a practical level, that's what you see. But I was wondering, is there some parable at work here? Another, another lesson about what God is doing. So behold your son, Jesus is providing a new covenant, a new promise that we've seen. But here I think we see glimpses of the new family that God is uh, birthing, if you like, through his son, which we call the church. Uh, last week we thought, didn't we, that to follow Jesus is costly. Uh, to trust in him is to take the path of the cross and it means forsaking all. Uh, do you remember the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10? Uh, what, should, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, the, the man asks Jesus and he says, go and sell everything. You're like, you, you, you keep the law, that's brilliant, but one thing you lack, go and sell everything. And he was talking about how his material possessions, his status as a ruler is, is what he longed for and what he worships. And Jesus says, you've got to let go of it all. You've got to give it all up and follow me. And the disciples are, are worried at this, like, what on earth are we going to do? Like, we've given up everything. And Jesus gives this incredible promise at the end of the story. He says, truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age of homes, of brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, along with persecutions, but in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. And I wonder what's going on here with Mary, whose family have departed her. Uh, Jesus is teaching something about the provision as we follow him, as we stand at the foot of the cross, as we take up our cross and follow him, yes, we might have to forsake everything. We will lose potentially homes and brothers and sisters and mothers. But as we do and as we follow him, 
he will not fail to provide a hundred times more in this present age homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children see how God's wisdom again is wiser than worldly wisdom that God's weakness is stronger than man's strength it's always a lovely moment isn't it as a church family when we join together and celebrate communion because here we are like Mary at the foot of the cross confessing to to one another and demonstrating to one another that we are living in the reality of the death of the Lord Jesus we we take part in that one loaf don't we his body broken for us we drink of the cup that represents this new covenant and what that does is it builds us together it joins us together by the Holy Spirit as family we become each other's mothers and brothers and sisters God is providing for us way more, a hundred times more in this community as we follow him. Jesus' glory is being displayed in how he is the firstborn son, taking responsibility. But through his death, he's paving the way for all, his, all the brothers and sisters that are going to follow in his way. Those that he will give the rights to become children of God. And with that, we become each other's brothers and sisters and mothers. In 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, uh, Paul says, He is the head of the body, the church, because he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. As Jesus dies here, he is providing a way for a new family and this will all culminate in the new creation where those who have followed him unashamedly and gone through the the hard um, circumstances that that it will bring in following him what you have is a picture of a group of people who are victorious standing together worshiping the Lord Jesus where the last in this world who have forsaken everything to follow Jesus all of a sudden become the first The church is God's victorious family who in this world looks like the path of the cross but in the new one are the ones crowned and reigning with the Lord Jesus. Behold your son. He has provided a new way for us, a better way than all the Old Testament, a fulfillment of everything. Behold your mother. He has provided a family for us to be a part of. Lastly, it is finished. Uh, As we look at those uh, words of Jesus in uh, verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put on a sponge full of sour wine with a hyssop. uh, Sorry. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. All I want to say on this little phrase, uh, if there's any doubt uh, that our sins have been dealt with, 
if there's any doubt that God's sovereign plan has not come to fruition, that you, that you feel guilty and accused. Uh, that all that we've looked at, this new covenant that he's brought in and this new family that we're a part of, if, if there's any doubt in it, hear the kingly declaration of the king himself upon the cross, it is finished. The confidence that we have in all the promises uh, that we have in the New Testament, the confidence we have in them is the, that the king himself has declared it is done. Uh, and when Jesus was executed, this wasn't done to him. Just look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, uh, look a little later, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. He is in total control of what's happening. No one executed him. He, he accomplished it and he did it. And so when we look at all the promises that we have in the gospel, uh, they are all signed and sealed because of the work of Jesus himself. He is the one that's accomplished it. It's on the basis of him and him alone. That kingly decree has gone out in all the languages. Here is the king of the Jews. Our sins have been atoned for. The new promises have been brought in. There is a new family to be a part of and it is yours because the king has decreed it. It is finished. If there is any part of us that doubts what Jesus has done, that we've not really been forgiven, um, can I just simply say what authority uh, do you have exactly to say that Jesus' work wasn't sufficient? Who are you exactly? The person here on the cross is the eternal word who's been made flesh. He's the king of all creation. He's the inheritor and he has decreed it. So brothers and sisters, rejoice that your sins are forgiven and put confidence in the great king in all his weakness, which is actually your strength when he says it is done, it is accomplished. Um, if this is you and you do worry over your sin, can I encourage you to have gutsy guilt? Uh, gutsy guilt is based on Micah chapter seven, some of my favorite verses. Micah chapter seven, verses eight to 10. Um, uh, the prophet here says to his enemies, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Verse nine, I, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. You can hear the prophet, I, I know that I've sinned and I, I feel it. But, he says, he's gonna plead my cause. He's gonna execute just justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? And my eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Gutsy guilt, 
gutsy guilt, knowing that we feel the indignation of the Lord. And, and, and yeah, we, we, we do sin, we do get it wrong. But here you've got this kingly verdict that's been pronounced, it is finished. And so stand with confidence. And like Micah says, say to your enemies when they accuse you, rejoice not over me, because I have a defender. The Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. But he pleads my cause and he executes just, just, uh, sorry, judgment for me. And he will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Have gutsy guilt. See your king and see that your sin is dealt with. And putting your trust in him, you might feel last in this world. But believe me, when he returns, you will be first. You will be first. Let me close with a prayer. Paul writes, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins and he cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. But he's taken it away. He's nailed it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Lord, I just pray that we would have such glad hearts in your death. That we would say with confidence, rejoice not over me, my enemy, because when I fall, I know I will rise. And when I sit in darkness, I know the Lord will be a light to me. Thank you for that kingly uh, declaration that it is finished, that our sins have been dealt with. And Father, I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you, uh, would you give us such glad hearts. And please, Lord, help us not see our righteousness just as a status, but as a reality. Help us to see the life of Christ in us, changing us and transforming us that we might bask in your glory and know all that you've achieved for us. Lord, we thank you for this, for this passage and all that you've accomplished. And may we with uh, gutsy guilt believe that our sins have been dealt with, that we might rejoice in you and know your life in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.